You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Well, uh, good to be with you guys as always. So blessed and excited to fellowship, to worship, to get into the word of God. And so uh, let's open up to Philippians 2, 14 through 18 is our text today. Uh, Sorry, I kind of woke up and my voice is like gone. So it's like this raspy thing. So just go with it. That's where I'm going to be today. Uh, So the title of today's message is living in the midst of a fallen world. And uh, we're going to be reading out of the NIV, uh, New International Version. If you don't have that, as always, we have it on the screen. But let's go ahead and read our text this morning, and then we'll pray. Paul speaking, he says this. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. God, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we thank you that it's God breathed and it's God inspired. And it's edify, it's it's profitable for the edification of, of us, for training us in righteousness so that the man or woman of God might be adequately equipped for every good work. And God, we do pray that we would receive your word today as that, as authoritative, as the very words of God. And so God, when we line your word up to our lives, we ask that you would speak to us. Our desire is to hear from God today. And so I just pray that um, I would be your mouthpiece, a communicate your word correctly. You would anoint me by your spirit to do so. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Sorry for my voice, it sounds horrible. But uh, I'm good, I'm just, my voice. So what's happening here in this letter is if you've ever played football or if you've seen the movies, what Paul is doing in this letter to the Philippians is like giving the halftime speech. This is like the rally cry. This is the, you know, many times that comes from the coach and a halftime speech is obviously intended to motivate um, the team. And obviously if the team is losing, it's to motivate them to like turn the tide and win. Like, hey guys, we've been playing bad, but now time to shift and we have two quarters left and so let's go. Or if the team has been winning, Right? If they're on top, there is a sense where we need to finish well now. We need to keep going. Like, don't get a big head. Don't make a mistake. Like, play as if you were losing, so forth and so on. Right? I, I, I didn't play football. A um, little small. But been around it, seen the movies. Right? You get it. The halftime speech from the coach is like the motivational thing that happens. For Paul, who is writing this letter, he is like the coach. And the Philippians are like the team. 
And they're actually not doing bad. They're not losing at this point. This letter is not corrective in nature, but it's him as a father figure, a mentor in the faith. I mean, the apostle Paul, one that helped start this church, many of the believers know him personally. It's like the dad, father, coach figure saying, keep going. Like, praise God for how he's used you and how you've grown and how you become like Jesus, but don't get a big head. Don't become stagnant. Continue on in your faith, specifically in growing in the likeness of Christ. And so for the believers in Philippi getting this letter, it's like their rally cry to continue to love and serve God with all fervency, with all joy, despite every circumstance or any suffering they will encounter. For Paul, it's not halftime. For Paul, it's the end of his life. He actually, at this point, writing this letter, doesn't know how much time he'll have left. For him, it's like more like the, the one-yard line. It's the end of the story. It's the end of the play. It's the end of the game for him. And soon after this, he would be martyred for his faith. He would be able to say that I've, I've ran the race and I've finished the course and I've kept the faith. In a, in a, in a, in a well, in a good race he ran. But for him, as he's speaking to them, as he's writing, as he's penning this letter in prison to this church, it's with a deep affection for the believers there. And he's, he's trying to spur them on by guiding them, by reminding them, by lovingly pushing them forward. And if you remember, all of what he's speaking about comes from a very personal place. In one way or another, Paul has also been through these things himself. He's learned the lessons. He's, been, he's had to transform. If you remember Paul, he, he would call himself openly the chief of sinners, the worst of them all. I was the persecutor of the church. I rebelled against God. I, I, I rounded up Christians to be persecuted. Paul himself has lived through all of this himself. And he's speaking, much like a coach to a team, this letter to the Philippians. And this section that we've been in in chapter 2, actually from even into the, the, the latter half of chapter 1, has all been about Christian conduct, or, or he's addressing conduct that Christians should have. And he really digs into what a follower of Christ should look like. Not what Instagram tells us, not what, you know, like, like social media posts portray you as or a false identity or a false front, but the nitty gritty heart work of, of who we are in Christ and from that identity, what we're supposed to be like, Paul is addressing here. And what he's done is he's laid the groundwork that Christ is our example that we are to imitate. If you remember, at the very beginning of chapter two, Paul goes in to, to this, this really this, this, uh, this song that they used to sing, verses five through 11, and it's just declaring the, the humility of Christ, that he would lead, leave heaven, he'd be obedient to the Father, to come to the earth, born a baby, Christmas time, we celebrate this, to live a life free of sin, but in the midst of sinners, tempted in every way, but ultimately obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
And Paul, in everything that he says, today, last week, as we go forward, everything is founded upon Christ. Christ has done this. Christ did it perfectly. Let's look to him as we try to imitate him. Because, right, we're disciples. Disciples, by nature, are learners. It's more like, actually, apprentices. If you call yourself a Christian... Most of you are in this church building today because you do. You call yourself a follower of Christ. What that means, what you're saying is that I'm a learner. And my teacher is Jesus. Who I'm supposed to imitate is God. And we see this in the person of Jesus Christ. Even Paul himself would say, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm I'm not the one to be worshiped. Christ is. Follow me as I follow Christ. And so Paul continues in the same vein in our text today, exhorting the Philippian believers, actually all believers, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so our text today breaks down in two parts. One is the first three verses, verses 14 through 16. This is Paul exhorting us to a godly living. And the second part is really... If you're reading it in letter form, it's actually kind of Paul's takeaway. He's actually processing a bit, verbally processing his service unto the Lord, specifically to the Philippian church. And so verses 14 through 16 um, begins with an exhortation, an encouragement, a charge for godly living, right? And he starts by saying, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in the midst of a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you firmly hold to the word of life. So in order to live godly, I want to look at verse 16 right there. It says that we as Christians need to hold firm the word of life. The word of life is God's word. It's scripture. It's the word of God that we have in our hands that we're reading out of today. And Paul's exhortation to the Philippians, and should be true of all of us, is that our lives, if there's anything that you're going to hold firmly to in this world, it's the word of God. The word of God is what brings us life, not heeding to it, not clinging to it, not holding firm to it will actually lead to death, ultimately, spiritual death. But obeying it actually leads to the life that God intended, because really there would be no other way to know what God did intend of us unless we read it in his word. Like, what does God have for us? What are we supposed to do? All those big questions of life. What's our purpose? What's our meaning? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to treat people? How are we supposed to love our spouse? How are we supposed to love our kids? We find it in the word of God. And so denying it, rejecting it, leads to a life ultimately lived apart from God. Right? If if you're not holding firm to God's word, whether we like to think of it or not, we're holding firm to another word, whether that's our own manifesto or the world's picture of how we're to be. 
but there is something informing our lives. Like you are formed in a certain way, mostly by your environment, by the words of those around us, by what you're into or by what society tells you. Paul wants to start off saying is, as Christians and believers, the word of God needs to be our plumb line. Plumb line is a thing that we, that we measure everything else up to. Nothing else is as important as the truth of the word of God. And so when we hear something, when we're told to live in a certain way, when we're told to act a certain way, we need to go to the word of God and say, well, I don't know. What does the word of God say? That's the plumb line. That's our foundation. That's the thing that will tell us truth from error. It's what we should line everything up to. It's what should inform our worldview, what you think about the things that are going on in our world today should come from God's word by the power of his Holy Spirit. There's a lot of stuff going on in our world today. There's a lot of stances that you need to take, we should take, that we're asked to take. There's ways that we're asked to vote and who to vote for and what we think about things. There's so much going on in our world today when it comes to people and how we treat people and how the laws of the, I mean, you're right. We're in it right now. And in order to have a right, godly, biblical worldview of, well, what does God think of those things? Which is the most important question. Not what you think, not what people think, not what other people tell you. Think, what does God think? Because we, as disciples and learners and apprentices, are supposed to care most about, God, what do you think? What's your heart? And so holding firm to scripture, knowing it, reading it, memorizing it, understanding it, will inform your worldview, excuse me, so that you will be informed how to make decisions. Amen? The Bible talks a lot about the Bible. God's word speaks a lot about God's word and the importance of it and what we should do with it and how we should memorize it and how we should study it and how we should not depart from it. Um, Psalm 119 is a great chapter, longest chapter in the Bible. It talks all about the word of God and the importance. I'm just going to read a, a section of it that uh, backs up what Paul is saying here. Psalm 119, 9 through 6 says this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. As much as in all riches, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Once there's a solid base in your life, like once you feel like you have a solid base understanding, then we can begin to live from a biblical understanding. It doesn't mean that you can't grow until then. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't be transformed to the image of Christ, even though you don't know scripture that well. No, like the moment that you're saved, God gives you his Holy Spirit and the transformation begins, the work of sanctification. But what's gonna really ground you and inform you of how you ought to live instead of just haphazardly, like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, is 
is the word of God. And so Paul says, once we, once we hold firm to it, then he goes into Christian conduct and continued change. See, the thing is, is that we need an attitude change, a heart change to affect any change to our actions. If we actually want our actions and our words and our speech and our decisions and our thoughts to be changed, it needs to happen on a deep heart level. The Holy Spirit, what he does in our heart, heart translates to how we act. It's kind of like when you go to a doctor and he says, well, what's your symptoms? And you tell him your symptoms. What he's trying to do is he's trying to find the root of the issue. Well, what's causing your symptoms? The root of the problem, the, 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 the starting point of anything is the most important. And so when God is transforming you, it needs to start with an attitude heart change. And then the symptoms or, or, or our life will, will, will act in line to that. So for those of us that have surrendered our life to God, right? You're saved. You've made that decision that our life is no longer our own. I don't live for myself anymore. Um, God sent his son to die for me, and I believe that he died for me, and I, I, he forgave my sins, and I'm, I'm a new creation. If we've trusted and believed in Christ's work, the Spirit of God is at work in us, and the outward fruit or symptoms of our life will begin to change because God is at work in us. Right? We studied that last week. Paul said that last week. God is at work in you for his good purposes. He said that last week, and this week he says, okay, well, this is what that specifically means. He specifically said, do nothing, or excuse me, do everything without grumbling or complaining. Grumbling, complaining, or arguing. Paul says, do none of that. Stop right there. How much does that convict you? Like, seriously, you read that and you're like, well, there's almost not a lot I do without somewhat grumbling, complaining, or arguing about. Like, seriously, like, I so often, like, grumble and complain, and it may not be to people, and it may not be, like, but, you know, inside of us, this idea of discontentment, grumbling, not happy with our circumstances, always wanting more, always wanting something different. We struggle with this. This is something that we're always constantly dealing with. And Paul is telling this young church, when God's working in you, like one of the first things he's saying here is don't grumble, complain, or argue about anything. In context, I think he means two different things. One is interpersonally, like in the church, he's talking about church unity, and he's saying, I want you to be unified and at peace with one another, and I don't want you to complain and argue and, and, and grumble about stuff just you and, and people. But also, the same language here is used to, if you remember, the children of Israel. After they were freed from Egypt, after God miraculously like saved them out of slavery under Pharaoh, parted the Red Sea, I mean, they're freed from 400 years of slavery. What happens? They get into the wilderness and like almost immediately grumbling, complaining, I can't believe this. No food, no water. What am I going to do? I would rather be back in Egypt than here. Like I would rather be in slavery than, than going towards the promised land because I'm not getting what I want food and drink wise. Right? It's insane. But they were grumbling and they were complaining against God. That's what the children of Israel were doing. Yeah, it was because they didn't have any food and water and, you know, oh, we're going to die out here. It's miserable out here. 
But ultimately, they were, they were frustrated, they were complaining, they were grumbling about the situation that God had put them in. And so not only is Paul saying, hey, like you're a new creation. The Spirit of God's at work in you. you you're not supposed to. Like Christians, followers of Jesus are not supposed to grumble, complain, and argue to God or to man. That is not supposed to be part of your character. And at the core, if we were going to ask why, why do, why, why do we, why does humanity, why do the children of Israel, why do we do these things? Why do we complain and grumble and argue? I think at the core, there's, there's two reasons why. One is entitlement, right? Entitlement is, well, we think we deserve something and we're not getting it. Or we think we need that thing and we're not getting it. So what happens is we feel entitled to something. And if we're not getting it, we grumble, complain, and argue about it. That's big. That's, that's probably number one. Number two is envy. Right? Envy is not necessarily at all what we need or even what we deserve. But it's we want that. And we don't have it. And they have it. And I don't. And so what happens is, is envy causes tremendous grumbling, discontentment, complaining, and arguing to get that thing. Entitlement and envy, being led by that, living out your life like that, will put you in a world of hurt. You will become like we all see these people that are just super grumpy, and they're not content. And they're bummed about everything. And nothing ever is stoked for them. And it's because they feel in some way or another that they deserve something different. They didn't get what they think they needed or they just want something different. And the fruit of being led by entitlement and envy is grumbling, complaining, and arguing. Unless our heart is continuing to change by the Holy Spirit into the image of God, we will be led by entitlement and envy, causing grumbling, complaining in everything. This will be a normal part of our life. And what Paul is saying here, that is not for you. That is not what God intended. That is not the lifestyle that you should be living. You should not be enslaved to entitlement and envy. You should be led by the Spirit leading you into life, and life abundantly. You know, even at an early age, we... We deal with this. Um, we go to Target a lot as a family. It's like one of those things. Like, I don't know if you guys go to Target a lot, but like Target and Costco, like die without those on this island. So <clears throat> do that a lot. And what happens is, is we, it's hard not to go to Target if we have a kid with us, specifically like my daughter, Eva, she's five and a half, without like getting a toy. Even if it's a small toy, we got to get a small toy. And it makes the whole experience better, honestly, if we get the toy. But what happened was the other day, went to Target, and she really, really wanted two toys. Desperately wanted two toys. Same toy, different, like, you know, models, little cars. But, you know, the rule was, like, hey, one small toy. And it was, like, kind of this, I mean, you know, you're dealing with kind of this scene to kind of get through the store and get back to the car. Because she was like, doesn't happen all the time. With her, at least. With my son, two and a half, that's a lot. Happens a lot. But with Eva, what was happening was, is that she literally, you know, was kind of playing that, like, like I said before, she's like witty and smart. And so she's, she's telling me why she thinks she deserves two. 
I haven't got a toy in a while. We didn't go last week. Remember, we didn't go to Target last week. We didn't get a toy. So she's feeling entitled to two toys. So she's complaining and arguing that I'm trying to get her one. But then also, she just really wants both. Like, she just wants both. And it was this thing where we finally kind of worked through it. And, it. and it was because I was thinking about what was happening. And I said, Eva, shouldn't we, like, just be thankful that, like, Dada's even getting you a toy at all? Like, shouldn't we just be thankful? Like, because this is a no-reason toy. This isn't a birthday toy. It's not a Christmas toy. This is a no-reason toy. Shouldn't we just be thankful that I'm doing that? And, you know, I had to kind of work through it. But the point was, is that just like my daughter at Target, so many times in life we go through life thinking, because I just want something or I feel like I deserve it, then all of a sudden we act the way we want. And Paul's exhortation to us is to replace grumbling and arguing with humility and thankfulness. Because so many times if you think about what you complained about and why you're discontent, if we actually step back and be like, oh man, all of life is a gift. I'm so blessed. Not comparing. Comparison will be the death of you. But I'm just saying, just you have, you have food. Do you have clothing? You live in Hawaii. Like just, you know, that's what we got. I'm saying to myself. But we so often like look at the one thing and we're just like, my life is over. But Paul's exhortation is because of Christ, that is not supposed to be a part of our life, but rather humility and thankfulness. And he says, as a continued result of that, you will become pure and blameless children of God without fault. This idea here of blameless actually means to be above reproach. It doesn't mean that you don't have any sin or it doesn't mean sinless perfection, but it means that that you, your life is lived in such a way that those outside of Christ, they, they don't find fault in you. Like they don't find error in you. It doesn't mean that you have to fake it or be perfect. But when you live for Christ and when you're being changed into his image, your life should look, your life should be like free of sin. It doesn't mean that you don't mess up. It doesn't mean that you actually are free of sin, but you're changing you're denying sin and you're saying yes to God. You're becoming more like Jesus and less like the sinful, independent person that you were before Christ. So what Paul is saying, as you change, you're to become like more blameless and more pure. This idea of pure in Greek was a word that was used of wine that wasn't diluted of anything or weakened in any way. So Paul is using these ideas of when you become like Christ, you're getting rid of sin and the effects of sin. You're being restored to God's original design. You're becoming more like Jesus, not only internally, but on the outward, and people start noticing it. And so what Paul says as Christians is that we are to live a pure, devoted life that honors God. And our lifestyle should be showing our identity as children of God, right? It comes from internally, and then outwardly, all of a sudden, we begin to look differently. We begin to look like Christ. And all while this is happening, we're Christians living in the midst of a lost world, so, right, so we're changing into the image of God. We're living like God, empowered by the Spirit of God, 
But there's many around us that are not, that are lost. And what Paul says here, you're living in the midst of a crooked and a warped generation. A crooked and a warped generation. This idea of warped or crooked, it's when it comes to God's plans and his designs and his word and his intentions, when you line up humanity as a whole that don't know Jesus, that do not love God, do not obey God, aren't transformed, you line their life up to what God wants in his word, it's warped, it's crooked, it's off base, it's not in line with God's word. And man, maybe it's just because I'm getting older or maybe we just get more news or it probably is like the whole world is at our fingertips now. But man, it just feels like this world is like so like out of control. Like it's so wicked and perverse and violent and deadly and like, right? You read the, like there's almost like, it feels like there's like no good anymore. This is what Paul is saying. He says, in the midst of all the pain, the heartbreak, the disease, the violence, the death in our world, which is all a result of sin, all of that, we become crooked and perverse and warped and disobedient. And the world, especially our current generation, has a, such a warped and lost sense of God. It feels like every fabric, every part of the fabric of our society is going against or challenging biblical ideas. So Paul says, you, Christian, as image bearers of God. So think about God. The most holy, perfect, glorious, loving, patient, graceful, merciful person in all of existence and throughout all of the universe that has ever been. You're to be like that God in the midst of the culture that I just talked about. And so the contrast here is so, supposed to be something like out of this world remarkable. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of it. But actually the contrast is supposed to be pretty radical. It doesn't mean that we need to isolate ourselves. It doesn't mean that we, we can't fellowship and be with. We're actually supposed to be in the midst of it. But Paul is saying here, in the midst of a dark world, your life is to shine like the stars in the midst of it. Think about his, his illustration there. Like it's a little hard in town to see this, but if you go to the country, you can. If you've ever been off island or been in the middle of the ocean and you look up on a clear night, what do you see? You see the magnificent of, magnificence of the sky, right? And the Milky Way, and it's absolutely amazing. It's absolutely incredible and like it's totally pitch black, but the stars are incredible, right? You guys have seen that. You guys know it. But this illustration that Paul is using, excuse me, is, is telling of what our lives are to look like. And as the book of James would say, our actions and actually not our words are what separates us apart. And from experience, I can tell you, it's actually... Not what you, you choose maybe to do, but it's actually what you choose not to do, not to be a part of, that sets you apart from the world. And again, it doesn't mean that doing good and necessarily these good godly acts aren't going to set you apart. They are. But it's saying no to. It's abstaining from 
the passing pleasures of the world in the midst of what other unbelievers are doing. So many times, you not doing what the world is doing will make a bigger impact than just doing something different. I learned this well when I was in high school. You know, high school is one of those times where, like many high schools, my high school was a huge party school. We lived about a mile away from uh, UCSB, so University of California, Santa Barbara, in California. So there's a town that all the kids live in called Isla Vista. You see it on the news. It's that bad. Okay, there's that much debauchery happening in Isla Vista. Per capita, most alcohol consumed in the world. In Isla Vista, about 20,000 people live there. So as a high school, living a mile away from that environment, there was not a day, not a night of the week, there wasn't a party going on, most of the time being invited to. And I'm talking like the worst of the worst stuff was happening a mile away. Like, like the hardest drugs, the, like every, everything. But what happened was, I was a Christian, I was a believer, and me saying no, me still hanging out with them, being buddies, being friends, but when it came to that, me saying no or not partaking in what they did began to just, like, like a beacon, stand out. You know, there's some navigating, like, why don't you like us? Why don't you do this? What's going on? But that only gave an opportunity to be like, well, this is why I don't do that. I'm happy to be your friend. This is what I believe. This is, and it gave me an opportunity to, to, to be a light. And so many times, you know, it may be more regular everyday stuff. Maybe it's just not partaking in the office gossip. Or maybe it's not speaking bad of your boss. Everybody else is. And maybe he deserves it, but we're not supposed to gossip. We're not supposed to speak bad. So maybe it's not doing that that's going to set you apart. Maybe it's not speaking bad or slandering someone, or, or maybe it's choosing to forgive someone when they only deserve retaliation. But also, obviously, it could be like you not doing drugs and getting drunk and going out when you're not supposed to or sleeping with somebody you shouldn't. Like, obviously, there's all that encompasses that. God wants ultimately our heart and the desires continue to change from that. But also, God wants our lives to lead others to Christ by the way we live. Jesus in his famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's the longest sermon that we have recorded by Jesus. He starts the whole thing out. Most of it, it just talks about Christian conduct, the attitudes that a Christian should have. But he starts out by saying, Matthew 5, 16, to let our light shine before men in such a way that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. God wants us. He wants to change us for us' sake. But he wants to use us in others' lives so that they would glorify God. Paul then in this letter, he, he, he brings all this to light. He, he exhorts them on how to live. And then what happens is he transitions into processing his own service to Christ, right? And so Paul says, in light of all this, I then will be able to boast, verse 16, on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. 
But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming, to your, uh, coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. In other letters, Paul says similar things about the salvation of faith of other people. In other letters, he would say that the, the, the salvation of, of the faith of, of believers or churches or people are his joy and his crown. Here he says that he's boasting in this service to the Lord, knowing that his labor wasn't in vain, and he rejoices in it. The life that Paul has lived for God has not been an easy one. It's not always been peachy. It's not always been wonderful. If anything, he suffered incredible hardship more than we'll ever have to. But he's saying here that he's joyfully sacrificed in the service of others. And that he's happy to boast in what he feels like has come from their faith. That his life has not been wasted. And so he, say, I, I, he, he says here that He's able to endure much, but it feels like none of it has been in vain. And he says that he actually uses this, um, this an analogy of a, a drink offering. And it's interesting that a human would say that because a drink offering was an offering just like an animal offering where you would offer to God a sacrifice in worship. And usually a sacrifice meant a dying or a wasting of something. And so if it was an animal, you would actually sacrifice the animal, the priests would, in sacrifice or burn the animal to, as a sacrifice unto God. A drink offering was similar, but it mo most likely would have been of, you know, fine wine or perfume. It was something of value that was being poured out as a sacrifice and either dying or being wasted. And Paul says that my life in the service of Christ for your faith has been a drink offering. But what's important to note is Paul isn't trying to get like a thank you from them. Paul's trying to tell them that I haven't done this for you. I did this for God and I did it happily. I served my God and I sacrificed for my God because he paid the ultimate sacrifice. And none of this has been in vain because I believe that I've obeyed God. None of it has been wasted. And because of that, I will rejoice. Paul is in prison about to die. Do you see the internal work that God has done? This is not normal that a prisoner on death row would talk about joy. And he would look back. He's had a lot of time to think about his life recount all the bad things that he's gone to. Normally, when you have a lot of time to think about bad things in your life, it doesn't turn out well in your thought life. Depression, loneliness, regret comes from it. Paul would look at the entirety of his life, everything he had to give up, his current circumstance, and he said, because I did it all for God, none was wasted, and you guys are bearing fruit of that now, and I rejoice in that. Will you rejoice with me? So Paul's saying here, Paul was glad to do it. And if I was going to put this takeaway in my own words, I, I would say that Paul said this. Paul says, I have lived in such a way to not waste my life. 
My service to Christ has not been in vain. I have gladly poured myself out as a drink offering to Christ as I have worked for your faith. I rejoice in all that God has had me do, knowing that you are now and continuing to walk in Christ's likeness. This is what Paul is saying in the text today. And what it reminds me of and what I want to end with is a poem by a man named C.T. Studd. And this poem is titled, Only One Life Twill Soon Be Passed. I want to read this and I want to have these words sink in. It's exactly what our text says today. And I want us to enter into worship, asking, praying that our life would be like this. C.T. Studd goes on to say, Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true would ear thy strife pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn. And from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure from thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say, "'Twas worth it all." Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Father God, we just say that you are worth it. You are worth living for. You are worth living our lives upon. God, we thank you for the ultimate price that your son paid on Calvary. Jesus, we thank you that you died for us so that we wouldn't have to. And then you left us, the Holy Spirit, to become like you. And God, we pray that over our own lives and our own hearts. Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd continue to work in us to become like you. That we would be a people that are living less for ourselves and more for God that we would begin to look more like God and less like the world around us. 
God, help us on a deep level to have a sense of contentment. God, free us from a cycle of complaining and arguing and grumbling. God, we want to become pure and blameless children of God without fault. And God, we ask that you would use our lives for your glory, that others would see and others would know of the good news of Jesus Christ, that you're real, that you came, that you loved us, that you died for us. And so God, we worship you now for who you are and what you have done. You are worthy of our praise and our adoration. And so God, as we sing these songs, as we lift our hands, as we kneel before you, as we cry out, we do it because you are deserving and you are worthy. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.